This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Welcome smartpeoplepodcast.com. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am John Rojas, and as always, I am joined by my good pal, Chris Stemp. This is episode two of our Best Of series, and we will be focusing on technology on this episode It was pretty tough to go back and pick some of my favorite technology episodes, but I whittled the list down to a select few, and that includes Alexis Ohanian, Nick O'Mealy, David Michelle Davies, Scott Sklar, and Josh Klein. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I enjoyed talking to each of our guests. They all were fantastic interviews, and I got to geek out a bit. What's cooler than that? Hope you guys enjoy. The first clip we dive into comes from episode 110, Alexis Ohanian, who is the co-founder of Reddit. And if you've listened to the show before and you know myself, you know that I was giddy with excitement to talk to Alexis. In this set of best of clips, we talk to him about Reddit, original or lack of original ideas, and learning to code. As everyone I'm sure knows, you are the co-founder of Reddit.com, which is one of the most popular websites ever in the history of the world. What does that feel like? What does that feel like to be like, the internet is the biggest thing ever, and I am the king of it? You know, uh, (laughs) uh, one of the reasons I love living in New York so much is whenever I get on the subway, I know that in that subway car, not a single person gives a damn, uh, <laughs> like does not, it, no one cares. Um, you know, I, I, there, there are certainly moments when I have to, uh, you know, whether it's at meetups, just when I encounter people who, who use Reddit, who enjoy Reddit, uh, who are obviously very, very grateful for what it's done for them in their lives that I really reflect on it and think about it for, for a minute or so, but I'm not, I don't know. I still, uh, it, 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 the whole thing still feels really surreal. And I mean, Steve and I started it back in 2005. So at this point it's been, uh, oh, mental math, eight years. And, uh, and it's still a little, still a little surreal. As you said, not looking at your competitors too much and not letting the competition kind of defeat you. But what I know a lot of people think about, because I think about it daily, I'm, I love coming up with ideas. I come up with an idea. I go to the internet. I see it's already there and I get just, I'm just pissed and I'm defeated and I'm not creative and I'm not unique. Please tell me that happened to you at Dude, some all point. The time. Are you kidding me? All the time. If, if nothing else, I, you know, now with, with Reddit, Hitmonk and BreadPig under my belt, like there, there, I, I have yet, I think I have yet to have a truly original idea hmm. and I am so convinced 
No, I'm serious. I mean, yes, I have, I have done, you know, you know, Steve and I, we, we may have made original like remixes of other ideas, but like at the end of the day, this is all derivative. And yes, there is something, there is something very intellectually lazy and probably dumb about straight up copying an idea. But chances are, if you have an independent idea, just because you see that there are other people going after it in a market doesn't mean that it's not worth pursuing. I mean, I mean, if, assuming you have some kind of novel approach or you have an understanding for how you can actually be demonstrably better, um, go after it. it. Just all it means is that you're probably onto something. Now, like if your if your idea is to help make an app that helps people share cat photos better, um, you're going to have a lot of competition for that. <laughs> and there. There, there may already be quite a few apps and it may be a little niche. But as a cat owner who loves sharing photos of my cat, I, I might want to see it. But we, we far too often get so married to our ideas uh, and then and then get so defeated if, if we see that there's competition or, or we're so timid about sharing it with people because we're worried someone's going to steal our idea. Like, no, look, if you have a great idea and you launch it, a bunch of people are probably going to steal it because it's a good idea. They're going to try to compete with you. Because you're onto something, and that's that's the position you want to be in, um, and and simply be the one to out execute. Because ideas are worthless. Everyone has great ideas. Everyone does, but so few people actually do them. So few people actually execute them, and then even fewer do it well. And uh, and that's where you want to live. But the problem that I have is trying to find. I, I don't want to say like the free time because the free time exists, but enough time to really dive into it. Um, so I started looking into those like dev boot camps and those type yeah, of things. Do yeah, you yeah. think what what are your opinion on those? I mean, are, are those worth people putting out that initial investment and spending those three four months just diving into coding every single day? Yes, I mean, All if, right. I'm starting <laughs> starting the next open class. <laughs> I don't want you to quit the podcast though, but I mean, I'll keep you, doing the podcast. I listen, yeah. I'll quit my job or take a leave of absence or something and spend those four months doing it. From from what I've heard, uh, and actually, you know, we at Hitmonk grabbed someone who had, you know, she had never programmed before, and and came out of Dev Bootcamp and was was hireable. That is a very intensive way to do it, and and it's not cheap. Um, that now, fortunately, as there's more and more competition, those prices will start to fall. But when you consider, yes, it's five figures, but it's near guarantee. I mean, it's like I think their acceptance rates for these programs are in the high ninety percent. Uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who have some disposable income, who have say rather, who have some savings uh, that they've accrued over the years and are looking to get into the tech world. I consider it to be an extremely valuable investment because, like I said, it doesn't guarantee you a job, but it, in this economy, it's about as close to a guarantee as you can get. And it's an amazing, amazing industry. I'm, I'm biased, of course, but uh, it's it's really powerful, and I can't stress it enough. Like. We all have ideas. We all do. And the difference between the ones who have the ideas and the ones who actually execute on them, the ones who are the successful ones who you get to interview on podcasts, is because they have the skills, or in my case, they've ridden on the coattails of people who have the skills to do this stuff, to actually build it. Because at the end of the day, nothing matters when it comes to an idea, when you're just talking, when it's just words and like gyrating hands, like that doesn't matter. Like if you build something that actually has users that you can actually learn from, and iterate on uh, that. That is when it actually starts working and, and magic starts happening. So please, 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 if you have if you have the money, I think it is very, very worthwhile. Uh, and even if you if you don't, there is more discipline involved. But when you consider and look, dude, I've I play this. I say this all the time too. I'm like, I am just so busy, 
And then I remember and I catch myself and I feel like I, I feel honest when I say I am so effing busy. I have no time for this stuff. But then I catch myself watching uh, Breaking Bad and I catch myself watching uh, Orange is the New Black. Such a good show, by the way. <laughs> great shows. Great shows. And and I still feel like, you know, if I'm going to have my guilty pleasure, at least it's going to be high quality television. Yep. But uh, but still, there are. We all have times when I'm when I sleep an extra hour because I just don't want to get out of bed, or when I'm like playing with my cat for thirty minutes. Like, <laughs> I mean, I still probably will always do that. But like, we we all have decisions that we make, and we all are too busy. We all have too much stuff going on. Okay, but it's the decision between curbing the the stuff that is pretty much everything else, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and devoting at least some of that time to learning this skill. And again, it is not trivial, but the cost benefit on it is absurdly high. That's all I needed to hear, man. Yeah, that's (laughs) the light bulb. Our next set of clips was also a very exciting conversation. These clips come from episode 99 with Nico Mealy. We dive into all types of topics around technology, including the advancements in computing, smartphones, etc., web content creation, whether or not good content is being created, and then one of the biggest hot-button topics around today, privacy. I came across your book, The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath, on Amazon, was flipping through it, was absolutely fascinated by it. And I just wanted to, to kind of jump right in and talk to you about Cray supercomputers and how they were these million-dollar computers that corporations and the government owned. And now, you know, we have many people walking around with iPhones, which are more powerful than these Cray supercomputers. And just wanted to touch base on what this just means to to society now. Yeah, well, first, thanks. It's great to be on the show. I love love podcasts. And, um, you know, I think we kind of have lost sight of how quickly things have changed, how quickly computing has changed. You know, I was born in 1977, and even even then, that was pretty late by computing standards. But even then, if you ask most people what a computer was, they would describe something that would fill a room or even two rooms that cost five million bucks that was essentially unavailable to most Americans. And today, here we are, 35 years later, and 130 million Americans have a uh, have a smartphone that is as powerful or more powerful than than the Cray supercomputers of 35 years ago and it's that change that I think is worth spending some time thinking about we really haven't reckoned in some crucial way with that massive diffusion of power here's something that was really the domain of big institutions. I mean, imagine if you could walk into any strip mall in America and buy a nuclear bomb. <laughs> I mean, that that's that's the kind of power we're talking about, that kind of computing power. And today, people walk around with it in their pockets all the time. Part of what I was interested in is that we don't really even have very good language to talk about this that our vocabulary is really kind of weak. It's not really the internet. It's not really mobile phones. But what is it, right? It's hard to say. I, in the book, I talk about it as something, I try and call it radical connectivity. Because when I get down to what I think has really changed for power and for people, I think it's how connected we all are. We're connected all the time at virtually zero cost 
with no hierarchy, with a real kind of flatness to it. And that's what I, that's kind of the essential change that I think we've seen in our institutions, in our power. My book is broadly about what happens to our traditional institutions when all this when, when, you know, when every American can walk around with that kind of power in their pocket. I mean, when I go look at the most watched videos on YouTube or the most read blog posts and all these things, and almost, I don't want to say all, but the majority, in my opinion, and this is not the tech opinion, obviously, is it's just, like you said, the stuff that is funner. It's comedy. Yeah. It's quick hitting. It seems to be detracting from real art or creation. Am I just being a a Scrooge? Aristotle said excellence is a habit, and habits require discipline. And I think that our technology, its job is to make things easy, but it kind of conversely makes it harder to be disciplined in some real way. Nicholas Carr has a book, The Shallows, which started as an article of the Atlantic Monthly. And the, I think the title was, Is Google Making Us Stupid? <laughs> and, you know, he kind of makes a pretty compelling argument that the Internet is making us stupider and shallower. And I don't entirely buy that in the sense of I truly believe that technology is what we make of it. One of my obsessions is contemporary poetry and modern poetry. And the internet is awesome for someone like me because, like, I'll be reading something on poetry and it'll reference some obscure poet or book. And 10 years ago, I'd have to, like, go to the library and they might not even have it. I'd have to request it, wait for it to come in or what have you. And now, in the middle of reading, I put down a book and I go look it up online. And I'm able to just have this enormous access to such a deep, thoughtful vein of quite literally all of human knowledge. And that should be intoxicating, and it should prompt and excite us to further excellence and awesomeness. But too frequently, in fact, it turns into stupid cat videos and (laughs) some of the more terrifying cul-de-sacs of Reddit. (laughs) So I don't think, I don't blame the technology for that. Sure. I think in some ways the technology makes it a lot easier, but we have to develop the norms and habits to get there, to build a better, I don't know, it's kind of a moral call, I guess, at the end of the day, to become better human beings, to be, to more fully inhabit our our real selves. And I think that is the great challenge of the internet and of the technology. They won't even think about privacy. They won't even know what that means. I mean, I was having a conversation with my dad and he said, imagine when some of the kids now run for presidency, the things that are going to come out due to connectivity and social media are going to be ridiculous. And I said, yeah, but by that time, nobody's going to care. Somebody's, you know, shotgun and a beer or whatever, smoking something. It's going to be like, eh, it was we were young. Well, ones. you know, we might also end up more forgiving of some of these things, but I, I, it's hard for me to see how all of this is necessarily going to play out in that way. I mean, I think privacy. I think people understand they've given up their privacy in these bizarre terms of service, but they they don't have good ways of valuing it. And then when it's suddenly stripped away, they really get upset. I mean, you saw this stuff with Sean Parker's wedding, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, like, suddenly the world he built, the world he designed along the values he espouses around privacy, transparency, around the news media, works against him in a dramatic and overwhelming way, and he's pissed. The reason we have something like privacy is 
there are good reasons for it. It's not like it was a historical accident. You know, in Europe, they have this legislation pending that you should have a right to be forgotten. That you should it, it's that that's a fundamental right that you ought to be able to say to any internet company at any time, forget that is me, that is mine, forget it. And that's a radical notion that I think is awesome. Our third clip comes from episode fifty-three, David Michelle Davies, and it absolutely blows my mind that episode fifty-three, which seems like forever ago, was actually recorded in two thousand twelve. I guess you could say it was early in our podcasting career. I don't know. It just it makes me feel old every time that I realize how long we've been doing this and how many episodes we now have under our belt. But in this episode with David Michelle Davies, we talk about the Webbies, where technology trends are heading, and the age-old question of, are we doing more work than previous generations? Seeing how the Webbies is all about finding the, the best of the web... Do you think that good websites, good apps, things like that, things that are you know productive or worthwhile or whatever it might be, do they eventually find their way to the top? Do they eventually get found by users? Or is the internet just so crowded, in your opinion, that sometimes really strong things go by the wayside? It's a tough question. It's an interesting question. Um, I think that there's a huge – I think that stuff that's really – I think that stuff that's very, very good and very unique – and that has a team behind it that has a certain type of uh, behavior finds its way, right? But not everybody in the world who makes really good work is necessarily a great person for promotion or for marketing or sometimes it's not very social. And so a lot of times it isn't just enough to make something that's really great if you don't have or can't lean on somebody who can help get it out there, you know? So I think that I don't think it's sort of a given. Uh, I do think it is the most important thing, right? That like something that's really good has a much better shot of making it in the world than something that's mediocre. Right. Um, on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's sort of middle of the road that does find an audience uh, because the people who are promoting it and, and getting it out there and talking about it are really good at that. And I think that that's actually a, you know, an important skill. And, um, and, you know, so I think, I think it's obviously a mix, but if I was going to say, which would you rather have, obviously I'd rather have the, the great content of the great work. Do you have any really strong insight as to what we're moving towards? I mean, you're the designated internet smart person. So, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and ask you that and ask you to predict the future. (laughs) Uh, Well, one thing I think we think we here at the Webby's, we always like try to focus every year on a few things that we think are really interesting and that we're seeing a lot of work being done on and where we think that work is actually changing the way regular people behave. We really focus a lot on how do regular people behave? Um, and so one that we really are interested in is the way mobile technology is affecting like cash buying things between people at stores, the entire sort of function of commerce. Right. Um, and we're just like, that's like a very, very old behavior. You go in to a store, you go to a stall in a market, you go, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you go to travel great lengths and you trade. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, exchange, barter, commerce is, you know, one of the you know, core things that we've done as human beings forever. Um, and for a very long time, we've been using cash in order to do that. And, you know, I'd say like in the last, whatever it is, 10, 20 years, as people have been using credit cards and that's been easier, that's obviously been changing. But now we're seeing all these really interesting ways that um, your phone is impacting the, this consumer experience, whether it's how you exchange money with each other, 
how you buy things at Starbucks, um, how you buy things at the Apple store, you know, how you buy things at your corner coffee shop. Um, and I think that's sort of, that's really interesting. And there's, we've sort of looked at a bunch of examples of, you know, there's obviously a bunch of apps I could sort of talk about if you wanted to, but, um, I think that's, that's a huge change and something that we're seeing accelerating a lot this year. Me and John often joke that we get more done in a day than our parents got done in a week because of technology and connectivity and things like that. Do you feel like we work harder still as a nation? Like to me, technology is supposed to make things easier, but now it's like do it faster and do it more. It's just multiplied. I want to get your take on that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think if you look at, I guess I would say if you like look at like the nation's productivity, it's been going up for decades and decades, right? So we're getting more and more productive and we're working the same amount of hours, essentially, if not more. Um, you know, I, you know, it's all relative, though. It's like I always say it's like, uh, you know, when we were kids, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and I wanted to go see like Star Wars or something and the show was at, you know, 810, my parents were like, we better leave the house at 630 so we can get there at 7 and stand in line for an hour to get the tickets to wait for 20 minutes to see the two-hour movie, right? And the kids these days, like, they would – I mean, nobody does. They just would never do that, right? They, like, go to Fandango, they pre-order their tickets, and then they – you know, that sounds ridiculous to them. Yeah. Um, So in that way, that sounds, like, way more efficient. But then, you know, they have some other – they have other things in their life that they, in 20 years, that they'll consider when they look back to be, like, us standing in line for a movie for two hours an hour or whatever. So, uh, you know, I think it's just probably – you know, it's relative to – you know what you know and sort of where you came from. I do think it's interesting being of, I'm assuming of similar generations though, but I do think it's interesting being sort of part of a generation that like lived before the internet and after the internet, um, where there's a sort of unique perspective on what the world was like before email or before anybody really used email. Um, you know, and I, I don't think that, you know, in moving forward, I don't think that people will have that same perspective because I think the, the sort of change that happened is, you know, like a once in 500 year change. It's not like a kind of change that happens like every 20 years. Our fourth set of clips on today's episode comes from episode 115, Scott Sklar, who is a clean and renewable energy expert. And one of the biggest surprises that we found out during this conversation was he is a neighbor of ours in Arlington. Well, not like next door neighbor, but he does live in the same city. And he is a whiskey and bourbon guy, and it looks like Chris and I are going to have to take him up on his offer of checking out his home and office and having a drink or two with him. In these clips, you'll hear us discuss the return on investment of renewable energy and just an overall discussion about solar energy and other clean and renewable energies. What can a typical person expect when they make this investment? And you're saying that it's affordable now, but how long does it really take to pay for itself? Well, for solar water heating, it's uh, three to five years. For solar photovoltaics, it depends what kilowatt hours you're charged and where you live in the United States. If you live in the higher higher areas like Hawaii, uh, Long Island, New York, uh, areas like that where electric rates are very high, it's about a seven to eight year payback. If you're living where I live in Virginia, it's like a 15 year payback. But I want to remind you that um, electric prices always go up. They never go down. True. And for, when and since my I focus on the business community, you know, losing power in a residence is inconvenient. 
But when you lose power in a business, you're losing money. And in this area of Virginia I live, we have about five outages a year that last more than an hour. And so in businesses, this can be cost-effective in two to three years if you have outages. And remember, businesses also have higher uh, what they call electric sub-rates in their bill that are expressed as what's called demand charges or seasonal or peak power rates or ratchet or spot market rates. So if you size your systems to get rid of these higher rates, you can have much shorter paybacks. In most states, they don't have those higher rates for residential folks, so you don't get as fast a payback. And you just opened my eyes to something, too, because Chris and I both live in Arlington as well. I didn't realize that we had one of the higher electricity rates. Yes. Not only Arlington has the higher electricity rates, we have more outages than most parts of Virginia because of all the tree canopy. Oh, yeah. So, I remember yes, this summer, last summer, pretty bad. So, you know, what happens when we have an outage is all the neighbors come to my house and drink my <laughs> single malt scotch at night. So Oh, I'm coming to your house. They bring you drinks so that <laughs> yeah, they can charge their cell phone. Invited. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I understand a little bit of how solar works. But having you on the show, I really am hoping to kind of get a lesson and really what we've done and, and where we're going and how this is. I mean, give me, give me what we're well, looking at. Remember, you know, remember, in the earlier days of the industry, we were what we were really trying to do is, is – make the most efficient systems in the world. And the problem with that is just because it was the most efficient didn't mean it was easier to install. It wasn't necessarily the most aesthetic and in some cases had higher operation and maintenance. So, for instance, in all the buildings I work on, I don't tilt the panels to be exactly the right degrees with the sun. I have to face them south still because that gets the full east and west arc of the sun all day. But I flat mount them on the roof. So they're, first of all, they look better that way. Secondly, leaves don't get behind there, or raccoons or squirrels to chew through the wires, <laughs> or wind doesn't start uh, uh, blowing against them and, and creaking your roof. So flat mounting has become better, and therefore it costs less. But now there are all new technologies. There's, I have solar electric roofing shingles on my office building. On the front porch of my home, I have a peel-and-stick solar panels. They're not even glass that stick on a metal seam roof. And so uh, it's like a Band-Aid. You pull off the back and you stick it down. Uh, there That's are amazing. new kinds of solar electric uh, panels that are on foam that you put on flat roofs of commercial buildings. So... We're starting to create, there's even a solar window film out I'm doing on commercial buildings that I put inside the window and it gives it a tint and you can do them in different colors and they produce electricity. So we're getting a lot of new materials on the market, not only to be more aesthetic, but for instance, this peel and stick panels for metal seam roofs, uh, it takes a tenth of the time to put on a roof rather than if you have to have a metal seam roof, of course. And a lot of people live in condos and townhouses have metal seam roofs. So, and in rural areas too. So you have a lot more choices now in terms of the technology to, to both have an aesthetic look and have lower installation costs. And that's a great change. And the other issue is that solar has have basically halved its price over the last five years. So the panels are less expensive than ever before. And the last trend that I think is most interesting, actually there are two trends. One, 
because of, of our software revolution and apps on smartphones, we're getting diagnostic systems on solar water heating and solar photovoltaic systems and, and small wind systems. So you can go on, on the Internet anytime and see how much energy you've got. If you have battery storage, how full your batteries are. And you can really make sure it's working optimally and in understandable ways and icons, not in numbers. And, and then batteries, because of cell phones and laptops and now hybrid vehicles, uh, batteries. We're in a renaissance of battery materials. And so I'm working with about 30 different kinds of batteries in all my different projects in infrastructure and in buildings and tied to solar and small wind and other kinds of renewable systems. And it's fascinating. And I think in the near future, meaning the end of this decade, the beginning of next, you'll see a lot more standardized, modular, web-enabled smart battery systems on the market that you can purchase from retail outlets in your home and, you know, and in some cases make your building sort of solar or small wind ready, meaning you'll put the battery system in first and use maybe the grid to charge them up. And then your next year or, or when you do some renovation, you'll add your solar or small wind system and that will charge that battery system, not the grid. So we're in a, in a whole range of new innovation that's just on the horizon. Thank you guys so much for listening to this Best of Technology episode. Our last set of clips here comes from episode 48, Josh Klein. Josh is a technologist and life hacker. He's done all kinds of cool stuff, written some books, some blogs, all that good stuff. And in these clips, you'll hear a little bit of a conversation that we had prior to the interview a quick discussion on ideas and the importance of telling people your ideas and building on them, that type of thing. And then we finished the conversation talking about piracy and the effect on learning in other countries due to piracy and free information available on the web. Cool. I love the whole you know, people that do interesting things and whatnot. I got recently, or not recently, it was almost a year ago now, got to go to India and speak on a panel with Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the guy who actually invented the internet. And uh, for me as a, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, I mean, really like for a guy that's been hardcore into the internet since I was 11, this was sort of like saying, you know, hey, why don't you and Jesus and uh, Mahavagani get all together and like have a chat about uh, social reform and you can, you can represent people that are trying to break it. So it was, yeah, it was like pee in your pants time. (laughs) And I got there. And he was just the nicest guy. And we ended up like going out for wine and like chilling out. And his wife and my wife went out and saw the town. And the thing that I got out of it was at the end of it was that he's he's just a normal guy who's trying to make things better. And it was just such a huge moment for me to be like, okay, yeah, he's he's sharp. I mean, no doubt about it. The guy is gifted, right? Right. But it's not as though he's got a halo floating over his head. He just works really hard to make things better. And it was one of the most encouraging things in my career in the longest time to be like, okay, yeah, you know, I don't have to, to wander around in his shadow. He's, he, you know, he wants to chat. He wants to talk about stuff. He wants to know what you think. It's was super encouraging. I don't want to glaze over the thought you just made about how introduce others to your ideas, even if they're your competitors, they might add something like that's such a great thought. The open sourcing, when did it strike you? You know what? Things can be given away for free and it might be beneficial. Oh, man. Uh, I guess when I was 11 and I started downloading cracking tools that were freely available on BBSs and I was like, dude, 
some guy wrote this. You know, like as an 11 year old, this is a sort of epiphany that you can have and that people don't laugh at you, right? Like some human being made this automobile. You know, that's sort of an epiphany that you have. It's kind of a big deal, right? Well, at one point I, I needed a tool to do something and I found that some person had made this tool and he'd given it away. And I wanted to write him and be like, man, this is the most awesome. I don't know. It was some simple thing, right? It was like, uh, you know, a, a, a stream reader for, H, you know, HTTP streams or something. I'm not sure exactly what it was. But anyway, it was like, this is the coolest thing ever that you actually wrote this and you gave it away. And if you hadn't given it away, I'd never be able to do this cool thing that I imagine I will be – this impossible thing that I imagine I'll be able to do. Wanted to write to them and say thanks. Well, it turns out that that's exactly the bargain that was being struck is the person who'd written it knew that people weren't going to pay him for it, knew that someone would find it useful. He wasn't using it anymore, or even if he was using it anymore, making a digital copy is free and effortless, right? And now he's got his name on a piece of software. There's recognition there. When I say give away for free, there, for one, there's the, the philanthropic benefit, which is if you've got something and other people don't have it, if the more people that have it, the better off, right? Unless you're talking syphilis or something, right? So you know, <laughs> use, you're talking useful tools here. But, and then beyond that, there's a, a reputational economic in effect, which is my publishers after me to write another book. And this is the concept I'm kicking around now, which is that right now we're at a, a point in history where I can look up your reputational value the same that I can look up any human being's reputational value. And that was never true before. It used to be that my ability to look up your ability to influence others was limited to the number of people that I knew in my village. Well, now it's globally available and there's lots of tools that are going to be increasingly sophisticated in being able to do so. Well, if that's the case, then it's not too great a stretch of the imagination to say that at some point I should be able to look up how much good you're doing in the world and to do good by you based on that. Because the more good you're doing, the better the world is for me right? Just strictly from a mercenary perspective. So it's kind of an inverse tragedy of the commons. Every day I just see these people and they say, oh, piracy is killing America. And then you just kind of laugh and you see how well digital downloads do, how well the movies still do and all that stuff. Um, It's almost laughable. Well, but, but, but on the other hand, it's true. Piracy is killing America because America refuses to pirate. So everyone else is doing better than we are, yes. right? Like, Piracy is killing America because no one in the United States can do math anymore <laughs> because people in Israel are out there on Khan Academy taking content for free. Yes. Oh, my God. And educating themselves and then doing amazing things like producing competitive software that half the price of our software. Well, what what do you think that happened, guys? Well, it's because we gave them they got the chance. And yep. too bad the genie's out of the bottle. You know, that's not going away. The idea that that's out there is not going to suddenly vanish. The the concept that other people can improve their own lives through their own hard work, you know, through no fault of our own, using our content. Like, oh, God forbid the world will improve without giving me my 5%, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's nice. I never thought of it like that, but it's crazy. That is, that's awesome. You're kind of blowing my mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm totally ranting like a madman over here. I'm kind of a little embarrassed. No, no, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is great. We did it. Thank you guys so much for sticking around and listening to this best of technology episode. Please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. And remember, you can support the show by clicking the Amazon banner at the top of the page or clicking the donation page. We appreciate anything that you guys give us, whether it be a donation, an iTunes review, or even an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. 
Hope you guys are enjoying your 2014. Chris and I are back to booking interviews, so we'll have some awesome guests here in the near future. And we will talk to you guys next week.